all about what the Bible teaches us about love, sex, dating, marriage, relationships, all of that. So I'm going to start off today um, by reading a letter that was written about, or a portion of a letter, that was written about 25 years after Jesus uh, was crucified. And it was written by a guy named Paul, okay? Paul, his Jewish friends called him Saul. His Gentile friends called him Paul. He was a a religious leader, a Jewish religious leader, who had had this amazing conversion experience. Some of you know the story. Um, And he experienced a conversion where he became a follower of Jesus. And then he committed the rest of his life to teaching about Jesus, preaching about Jesus, uh, writing about Jesus, launching little churches all around the globe. And one of the churches that he launched was in a city named Corinth. And Corinth is right in Greece, okay? I'm going to do a little background for you, but Corinth is in Greece, and Corinth has a lot of similarities to St. Louis, believe it or not. Uh, Corinth was a pretty large city in Greece. It was on a a, a waterway, so there was a major trade route there. There were people from all over the world that came and lived in Corinth, uh, Romans and Jews and Africans and Asians and Europeans and people from all over. There were all sorts of religious persuasions and different ideas um, about spirituality. But the main religion in Corinth was a religion uh, that worshipped a Greek goddess named Aphrodite, okay? And we got a picture of Aphrodite here. We've given you, um, well, I'll explain. A- a- Aphrodite was the goddess, the Greek goddess of love, re- you know, sexuality, pleasure, beauty, and all of this, right? And which is why we've given you the cropped version of Aphrodite uh, to keep this series in the PG zone. Um, And the way that people venerated or worshipped Aphrodite was in Corinth. They had this very big temple. And in this temple, there were these uh, thousands of courtesans, uh, women that were very expensive, very exclusive temple courtesans or temple prostitutes. And the way that um, the Greeks in in Corinth would worship Aphrodite is you would come, they would pay an amount um, to the temple prostitutes, and that is how they would... um, That's how they would worship Aphrodite, this goddess of love and sex and sexuality. Um, So it's into this environment that the Apostle Paul launched a a church um, following Jesus. So it was was a challenge, right? In fact, uh, so prevalent was this sort of, um, this kind of sensuality that one of the great Greek writers in in Athens, a few hundred years before um, this took place, a guy named Demosthenes, wrote this. He put Greek women into three categories, and he said this. He said, we have prostitutes for pleasure, mistresses for our daily body's needs, and wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. So not the most advanced and progressive view of women there in ancient Greece. So imagine coming to ancient Greece, you're the Apostle Paul, and you want to launch a church into this environment, right? So he came, he launched this church, he started teaching them about Jesus, read them the scriptures, prayed with them, Holy Spirit moved in their midst, and and a church formed, okay? But then Paul decided he's going to go to some other cities and um, launch other churches. So he, he left Corinth and started going, traveling around the globe and launching other churches. But he kept getting reports from this church that he had fostered in Corinth. And some of the reports were good. But some of the reports were not good. And um, 
then at one point, the people in Corinth, because they're surrounded in this culture that literally worships physical sensuality. And by the way, it, this is going to get this, this is going to be PG, but it's going to be a little bit, you know, going to be a little intense. So if, if, if you're nervous now, this is a really good time to volunteer for the children's ministry program. Um, invite you to to participate in that. Um, Anyway, so it's in this environment that he launches this church. He's hearing these reports. And then he gets a letter from the church in Corinth. And the Corinthians had put together a list of questions that they had for Paul. And, they, and, and a lot of the questions centered around how do we do relationships? How do we, how do we, what do we do about sexuality? What do we do about marriage? What about people who are single? How do we do this, Paul? right? And, and they wrote him all of these questions and this whole series of questions. And then Paul wrote back a letter to the Corinthians. And I'm going to read you just a small portion of it um, right now. Well, it's kind of a big portion, but it's a, it's a smaller portion of a bigger letter. Okay, here's what it says. Paul says, now, for the matters that you wrote about, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. But since Paul says, sexual immorality is occurring. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife, he says, does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. And all the, and all the husbands are like, oh, 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 oh. And then he says, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other um, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this, Paul says, as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. And I'll tell you what that means in just a minute. Uh, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, do I have your attention now, right? We didn't need a story at the beginning of this sermon. We just read this, and everybody's like, okay, we're listening. We're, we'll see where this goes. I, um, in, in, in this environment, you know, in the city of Corinth, with all of the stuff that was going on, I find this passage from Paul to be a refreshingly candid, clear, practical, and challenging message about sex, dating, marriage, and relationships. And so, in honor of that, I have titled today's message, The Apostle Paul's Refreshingly Candid, Clear, Practical, and Challenging Message About Sex, Dating, Marriage, and Relationships. Um, normally, I like to do a punchier title, but I really feel like this sums it up. All right. Now, you may say, okay, what, 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 are we, what, are we do, what, what are we doing as a church talking about this? Well, this is hugely important. And I would just say this. I think that the church has been remiss historically, not, in, not every church, but generally, remiss historically in not addressing real stuff, real issues that people are facing. And there are a lot of messages that are disseminated in our culture through various media, through the internet, through movies, and every other way. Uh, and nobody else seems to be shy about talking about this kind of stuff. The church has been, you know, uh, unduly tight-lipped about this kind of thing. 
And it doesn't need to be because the Bible is rich and full of a discussion about how are we to live out our lives in a way that is, uh, is for our fulfillment, is for our good, and is for our flourishing. I think, I think traditionally a lot of people think that the Bible is just the book of no, right? Don't do this, don't do that, shame, condemnation, bash you over the head. That's not what the Bible is about. We're going to dive into it because it's God wills your good. Believe that or not, God wills your good. He wants what is good for you, and that's what he teaches us in his word. Okay. Amen. Thank you. I'm going to take those amens. Um, here, are some, here are some conceptions. Before we dive into what Paul says here, I want to just unpack some of, the, some of the sort of cultural views that sort of swirl around, right? The, the, the spirit of the age kind of ideas, um, uh, about sex and, and, and relationships. One is this. A lot of people th- would say, you know what, sex can just be strictly physical. All right? If you have your, um, your bulletin, you can follow along. We have uh, these sermon notes in there if you want to follow along and fill in the blanks. Um, a lot of people say, you know what, sex is just physical. It's just sexual. It's its, its own thing. Well, this idea actually, at least to some extent, derived from a Greek view about sexuality and, and the body called dualism, all right? Dualism, dual means two, right? And there was a, a Greek conception that the body and the spirit were totally severed from each other. There's a hard break between the body and the spirit. And the ancient Greeks said the spirit is important and good. The body is of no interest to us whatsoever. It's of no value. And that's what this dualism was all about. And this dualistic idea crept into the church, okay? In the early church in Corinth, because they're in Greece, crept into the church, and church people, Christians, began to sort of believe this kind of dualism, and, and, it, and it led them down two paths. And I'll tell you the two paths that it led them down. One of the paths that it led them down was down the path of saying, since the body is, does not affect the spirit, since the body and the spirit are totally separate from each other, then it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. We can do anything we want with our bodies, and it will not affect our spirit. All right? So this led to sort of a, a, you know, a licentious, sort of decadent, uh, indulgent kind of conduct because they said, you know what? The body doesn't matter. It doesn't affect the spirit. We're free to do whatever we want. And so, you know, this is, this is fine. Another group because, you know, adopted this dualism, it led them down a different path within the church, and they felt like the body should be totally deprived, that the body is totally bad, it should be totally deprived. They were advocating, in fact, one of the things that Paul's addressing in this letter is that some of the Christians were advocating celibacy even within marriage, and they were saying the body should be totally disregarded and starved and, you know, paid no attention to. And so Paul recognizes that this dualism is going on. And in chapter 6 of Corinthians, right before the passage I just read you, listen to what he does. He brings it together. He says, Do you not know that your bodies, your physical bodies, are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? He said, You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So what he's saying is this dualism that separates the body and the spirit that's not right. The Spirit of, of God is in your body. Your body is the temple. It houses the Spirit. And so you don't disregard your body, right? You don't, you don't uh, deprive your body, but you also don't degrade your body, 
right? You don't do either. You honor the house in which the Lord lives. Um, so he brings these two ideas together. And I think even today, for those who would say that sex can just be a physical act, the, the Bible teaches, and I think experience also will just flesh out, that that's a very shallow and naive view about both the body and the spirit. Because the body, the mind, the spirit are tied together in a very integrated, in a very woven way. And when you think that the things you do with your body don't affect your emotions and your spirit and your soul, you will find out very quickly if you adopt that view that that's just a bad view. That just that view just doesn't work. Okay, and so and and so Paul is saying, look, this is what you do with your body does matter. Okay, let me give you another quick conception. Uh, and I won't spend a lot of time on this, but a lot of people say, you know what, the Bible's view of sex is very narrow and repressive. Some people would say that, right? I'm not going to get into this right now, but we're, I, if that's your view or you sort of think that might be true, you need to hang around because you're going to hear a lot of stuff that you might not have known was in the Bible. Um, and the Bible is very much directed at, at human flourishing, at creating and helping you experience joy, fulfillment, um, and even pleasure in the area of your relationships. Um, and so I'm not going to drill down to that, but just if that's your view, hang out with us. Um, another view is that marriage will confine me. Marriage is a, uh, you know, sort of this institution that traps you and holds you down and enslaves you, right? I will just say this to that, and, and we're going to be talking about marriage. Um, the time, you know, for me, when I was, between the time I was 19 and in my, um, you know, early 30s, I was not a believer. I was not a Christian. Uh, and I did not feel constrained by the teachings about um, relationships uh, that were in the Bible. And I would say this. I felt like, for me, I wanted to be free. I didn't want to be constrained. And what I found is that my unwillingness to commit as a young man became an inability to commit once I continued down that path long enough. My unwillingness to love actually became an inability to love. What I considered to be freedom became a sort of slavery. And if it weren't for the grace of God and good family and good mentors and this gorgeous woman right over here, I would still be entrapped in that world. And I say, thank God for the constraints of marriage because it has liberated me in ways that when I look back at my old views, I have to, I just have to SMH. You know what that means? You know what I mean? I got to shake my head, man. I'm like, wow, I cannot believe that that's what I thought back then. And if marriage is confinement, then I I will happily be confined for 60 more years if my wife will have me. Amen. We're going to talk more about marriage. Other people take the full polar opposite end of marriage, and they say that marriage will complete me. Marriage will complete me. I, I you know, I, I, I'm not a whole person, and, but when I get married, I know that that's going to complete me, right? This idea does not come from the Bible. Moses did not come up with this idea, even though people quote it like it's the Bible. You know who came up with this idea? Or popularized it? Help me out. Who's this? Come on. Anybody ever seen Jerry Maguire? This movie gives relationship counselors a lot of headaches. Because there's a lot of single people out there thinking, if I just find the one, then I will be complete. Let me just challenge you with this, all right? Let me just put this out there for your consideration. 
God did not make you a partial human being. God did not make you a half of a human being that is not a whole human being until you are married or until you come, come you know, into contact with somebody else. God made you whole and complete. He loves you wholly and completely as you are. You actually don't need, you do not need a man to complete you, and you do not need a woman to complete you. You are complete and whole in and of yourself. And single people, I would say to you, you are in an environment where you are honored, loved, respected, valued. We love you. You're not alone, and you're not incomplete. Okay? All right. I told you the single people, I got a lot of stuff for the single folks in this. Um, all right. I think we talked about all of the kind of, you know, there are more, but, but th- those are the sort of, um, some of the big ideas that kind of hang around uh, in our culture today. Um, but, but there's so much that the scripture says about relationships, and I just want to challenge you and encourage you to, to listen and sort of reserve your judgment for some of this stuff and reserve your um, cynicism and just sort of take this in for a minute and, and chew on it, ruminate on it, okay? Marinate on it, all right? Because really, the Bible is about helping people to flourish into who they are. Jesus said that I have come that you might have life and that more abundantly. He did not come, to, he did not say I've come to deprive you, make you angry, bitter, and, you know, sorrowful, all right? He has come and the Bible is here to help you in these areas. So, Let's dive into what the Bible says about um, these issues. And we're going to spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 7, but we're going to touch on some other passages as as well. One of the very first points I want to just clear up about the Bible when it comes to relationships and sexuality is that the Bible actually celebrates sexual pleasure and fulfillment. It actually celebrates that. Um, The culture around us gives a lot of messages about sexuality. You cannot, you literally cannot, you know, I'm going to watch the Super Bowl this afternoon. And I know some of you also are going to watch the Super Bowl, I assume. There will be a number of ads that will give us sexual messages, either subtly or not so subtly, uh, during the Super Bowl. If you get on the internet, if you listen to a speech, if you go to school, if you're at work, there are messages that you will receive uh, thousands of different message, messages about sex and sexuality. And the, as I mentioned a moment ago, the church has historically been quiet on this issue. But I want to posit to you today that God is not prudish. God created sex. God biologically designed the human body to enjoy it and to find fulfillment in it. Um, and so I'm going to read you a couple passages, and then I'm going to leave a couple passages for you to read on your own. Proverbs 5, may your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. I'm not sure about that part, if I would, but that's, may her breast satisfy you always, may you ever be intoxicated with her love. All right, I didn't write that. That's that's from the Bible. Um, And if this passage doesn't demonstrate you know, along with other passages like it, I would urge you, before you watch the Super Bowl today, sit down, open your Bible, right to the middle, you'll find the Song of Solomon. Read that. And then you can determine for yourself whether or not um, God is sort of some sort of repressive killjoy. 
Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful love poem that explores sex and sexual intimacy between a um, uh, uh, husband and his wife and this beloved and, and her lover. Um, and it's a fascinating poem. In fact, I thought about us doing Song of Solomon as our relationship series, but I'm like, I'm just, you're not ready to hear that, and I'm not ready to preach that. So if you stick around maybe four or five years from now, we'll, we'll gear up for that one. But um, let, me just, let me just say this, as we, uh, you know, sort of as a preface for this whole series. There, there, was, a, there was a man down in uh, a place called Three Rivers, Texas. His name was Richard Dockery. Okay, and this is a little town outside of San Antonio. Richard Dockery was a guy, just a regular guy. He worked, he did a little bit of real estate, he did a little bit of insurance sales down in Three Rivers, Texas, and he kind of was cobbling together a little bit of a, a nest egg for himself and, you know, just trying to make a living, right? One day, just a few years ago, he was approached by an oil and gas company, and they said, Mr. Dockery, we think that there may be a, uh, a reservoir, an oil and gas reservoir, under your property. Would you mind if we drilled in to your property to check it out? He said, okay, that's fine. They drilled into his property, and what they found was a, a massive oil and gas reservoir that was not only under his property, but actually affected thousands of residents right outside of um, San Antonio. Richard Dockery, who was, you know, like I said, just sort of pulling a little bit of cash together here and there to try to make a living, is now a multi, 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 multi millionaire. Every time he goes to the, um, the post office, there's, you know, a six-figure check waiting for him. Not only him, but literally thousands of other people in that region. Question, when did Richard Dockery become a millionaire? Was it the moment that the oil and gas company found uh, the gas? Was it when he cashed the check or was it when he bought the property? I mean, I would posit to you that you could at least argue it was when he bought the property. And here's what I'm, here's my comparison. As believers, if you are a Christian, there is a, a, a deep reserve of wisdom and power and strength and beauty in the scriptures that is available to you, the blessings of God available to you, an abundance available to you, and I think that we ought not only to just scratch the surface of what this means to be a follower of Jesus, but to drill down deep and, and release those reserves of, of wisdom and power and joy that are available to us in our life. I really deeply believe that. Um, so, point number two. Moving, moving right down the, the list. The Bible actually celebrates singleness. A lot of churches, you may get the impression that the Bible is, uh, you know, pref- preferential towards marriage couples, but the Bible actually celebrates singleness. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the, doesn't, doesn't the Bible say it is not good for a man to be alone? It says that, right? Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says that. But if you want to understand the text, you need to understand the context, all right? In the context of Genesis chapter 2, this is, a, this is, a, this is, a, this is the, uh, the narrative describing the, the creation. And God says this about Adam. And if you look at the passage, guess what Adam is surrounded with at that time? Some rocks, some grass, some shrubs, some cactus, cacti. You know, not much, all right? And then God says, you know what? It's not good for man to be alone. And then the Bible says, then God created every sort of crawling, squirming creature and every sort of wild beast and everything of the field, right? Some of you out on the dating scene, you're like, I totally get Adam, 
right? I mean, I've, I've got, I'm just surrounded by squirming creatures and wild beasts and creatures all around, right? Point is, Adam was totally alone, all right? Totally alone. If you're single and you're in this house, in this church today, you are not alone, you are, if you, you may feel alone, but you are surrounded by brothers and sisters who love you and who honor you and respect you, and we're here for you, okay? So you, if you want to get married, that's good. Getting married is good, but I don't want you to put this pressure on yourself where you think that you're not a whole person or you're not a real person or you're not a fully complete person if you're not married because that's not what the Scripture teaches. In fact, in this passage that Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says this. He says, now to the unmarried and the widows, in verse 8, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. So Paul, most scholars believe that he had been married and that his wife died, and so he spent the rest of his life unmarried. And he was okay with it. He was all right with it. He was able to move through life unmarried. He wasn't, apparently, you know, he talks about it being a gift for him, so a, a, a Charisma, a, a gift from God, the ability to remain unmarried and not be unduly sort of tempted by sexual desire. Um, so what he's saying to single people is, hey, if you can do this, do it. Because, you know, then you don't have to focus on kids and family and, uh, you know, all the struggles of the world. You can actually focus on the things of, of God. You can, ha- you, you know, you can do ministry. You can help out. You can serve people. You can do all sorts of stuff. You know, now if you don't have the gift, then yeah, go ahead and get married. But, but please do not put yourself in this position of feeling like, man, I'm, I'm nobody if I'm not married, right? I'll give you an analogy for the sort of where, where your heart wants to be when you're single. When we, when we first started the church, I mean, we were doing, I was doing like a lot of appointments. I still do, but like I, I would come from downtown where I worked and I'd come and I'd meet people on the Del Mar Loop. And, you know, and I was supposed to meet a guy one day uh, to talk about the church and whether or not they were interested in coming to the church. And so I drove, rushed down to the Meshuggah coffee shop right over here and I sit down and got my coffee and I'm waiting and I'm there on time. And, you know, a few minutes pass and my appointment doesn't show up. He's not there. So I check my time, I pull out my phone, I check my email, like, okay, am I at the right place, the right time, right day? Because sometimes I'll actually show up places a day early. It's really embarrassing. But I usually don't show up a day late. It's, it's odd. But anyway, I'm there, and I'm like, no, I'm in the right place, right time, right day, everything. So I text the guy and just say, hey, you know, I'm here. Are we still on? And don't hear back from him. So, you know, my first response is I'm frustrated. This is kind of a waste of time. I'm kind of ticked off. And then I noticed I've got my bag here, and it's got my computer in it. So I thought, all right, well, so I get my computer out, set it up on the thing, open my laptop, put my earplugs in, and I just start, you know, doing work. And I don't know how much time passed. I can't remember if the guy ever showed up or didn't show up. But what happened was I got a ton of work done. It turned out to be a very fulfilling and rewarding time for me in that zone. Now, if you're single, you do not have control over whether or not your appointment is going to show up. You do not have control over whether or not another person is going to come into your life that is the right person for you. You don't have control of that other person. What you do have control of is what you're going to do in the interim. What are you going to do with the time and energy that you have right now while you're waiting for that person to come? 
And, and, and I think that, that God is, is trying to encourage us, and the Apostle Paul is trying to encourage us in this passage, not to become enslaved by your desire for that other person. Don't become enslaved to that. Don't become focused on that. Focus on your purpose, not on your problem, and then your problem gets small by comparison. And, and, and the interesting thing is that a lot of times when you are charging down that path, um, then things come together in ways that you didn't expect. God's got you. He's looking out for you. He wants the best for you. So just focus on what you can do right now, and don't beat yourself up for being single. Is that all right, single folks? All right. All the married folks are like, he's right. Single people are like, I don't know, man. Um, you know, in, in fact, Paul actually talks about marriage. It's, it's not like this sort of panacea, this sort of like, man, it'll fix everything. In fact, in this passage, he talks about marriage as a concession, not a command. A concession, not a command. What does that mean? Well, what he's saying is there's a... Um, marriage is a, is a place where you can direct your passion and desire in a way that will be healthy, positive, and, um, and productive. So if I, I've got a son. I've got a four-year-old, Lincoln. And Lincoln, it loves to fight. He likes to punch. He likes to kick. He likes to eye gouge. I mean, the whole thing. He's, a, he's you know, he likes swords. And um, so, so I'll come home from work, and Lincoln will be like, hey, Dad, bang! And it's like... We have rules, you know, like neck to belt line, but, you know. Um, but anyway, uh, here's what we're going to do in our house. This is him, right? There's, there's no changing that. We're going to take Lincoln. We're going to get him enrolled in either a boxing gym or a wrestling gym or a jiu-jitsu gym. Or I'm going to turn him over to Lee Furnace, and Lee Furnace is going to train this kid. One way or another, we're going to find a productive, healthy means where he can take this excitement, this passion, this enthusiasm, and head it down that channel. When Paul talks about marriage, that's how he describes it in this passage. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, he's talking to the Corinthian church. He's saying, you know, you guys are already committing sexual immorality. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. I say this, he says, as a concession, not as a command. In other words, I'm not commanding you to get married. I'm just saying, if you need to get married because you're, you know, you know, you're, 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 you're punching people when they walk in to the house, um, then <laughs> get married. You guys are connecting the dots out there. I really appreciate it. Really, really appreciate it. This is not easy stuff, okay? He says, I wish that all of you were as I am, you know the single guy who doesn't seem to have a problem with it. But each of you, he says, has your own gift from God. One has this gift. Another has that gift. So it's not a panacea to all your problems. It's, it's an opportunity for two people to come together and look after one another and serve one another, encourage one another, hold each other accountable, and work together towards the end of honoring and glorifying God in their life. That's what it is about. And this is going to be the last point that I'm going to introduce to you today, and that's this that marriage requires a mutual relinquishing of control. It requires a mutual relinquishing of control if it's going to work. Now, when about two years ago, when we first started the church, um, Craig Wagner, who's a member here, uh, he, he put on this little 
um, event for us. It was called Build a Bike. And the idea behind the event, some of you were there, probably 50 of us showed up for this event. Um, the, the idea behind this event was a group of us, were, we were going to come together and we were going to build bicycles for these little kids at Boys and Girls Club. And so we all come into this Centennial Commons, this big room, and he's got bike parts sitting at each table, right? And then he divided us up in teams, and he's like, all right, I want you guys to, to build these bikes. And I don't know if he said it explicitly or if implicitly we sort of thought it, but we thought it was a race, okay? We thought it was like a competition. So we all, all of us are divided up in teams, and we're all like putting our bikes together as fast as we can. Unbeknownst to us, uh, 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 Craig had other ideas about what this whole thing was about. He had taken parts from each table and put them on tables belonging to other teams. So you're sitting there putting to get, you know, together the bike, and you're like, why do I have two handlebars? Right? We're trying to get this. What kind of bike is this? You know, is this a double bike? I don't understand. Unicycle? So we're trying to, like, get these things together, and it slowly dawned upon each team that in fact, this was not a competitive event, this was a collaborative event. That we had to take our extra handlebar and go exchange it for an extra seat. Or we had to take, you know, our extra pedal and go exchange it for an extra reflector, right? He had built this whole situation to say, you know, you're not actually fighting each other. You're working with each other. You're giving up a little piece of something that you have, and they're giving up a little piece of something they have, and you're coming together and you're working together as a whole to make something bigger and more beautiful than any of you could do on your own. And that's, that's the image. That's the picture of marriage. It's two people relinquishing stuff to each other. We talked about this last week. It's not a contract wherein you give up the least amount that you have to get the most amount from the other. It's a covenant where both people are giving 100% to the other person. Look what Paul says here um, in verse 3. He says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but he yields it to his wife. Now, specifically here, he's talking about sexuality but it sort of applies to, to the whole way that we interact as spouses with one another. It's not a wrestling match. It's a waltz. You want to be feeling where your partner is at, what they need, where, where you are at, what you need, and trying to, you know, not lord your rights, not stand on your rights over your partner, but to kneel in submission before God and in service to your spouse. That's what he's calling us to do, and he's calling us to be. And so I just want to put this out there to all of us this week, those of you that are married. This week, I want you to think about what is it that your spouse might need from you that you can give? Is it a caress? Is it a tender caress? Is it a a kind word? Is it sitting down together on the couch, reading the Song of Solomon together before the Super Bowl? Um. Is it an act of service? Is it, you know, maybe doing the dishes for the other person or the laundry? I'm going to be careful with that because I don't want to obligate myself to anything. Um, or a little gift, a thoughtful gift. Um, love grows out of these thousands of little gestures that we do for one another. Everywhere in the Bible that it talks about loving one another, it's coupled with some sort of act of service or love or kindness towards another person. 
Greater love has no man than this that he would lay down his life. So love is always connected to some sort of service or sacrifice between one person and another. So here are my two practical applications for you today. Um, These are in your bulletin. One is if you're single, what is one practical way that you can use the freedom of your status to bring honor to God by serving somebody else this week? What, what, what is it? And just write that down for yourself. You don't turn it in. You just write it down and knock that out this week. What is one way that you can say, all right, I'm not going to focus on my status. I'm going to focus on my service. I'm not going to focus on my problem. I'm going to focus on my purpose this week. If you're single, what, what is one thing you can do? And if you're married, what is one practical way I can demonstrate my support, love, and encouragement to my spouse this week? What's one thing that I can do? Now, I know some of you are like, you know what? Let me fill yours out. Okay, let me just, I'll I'll let you know what that is. And that might not be a bad idea. You could just turn it over to your spouse. Um, Because you might write something like, you know, watch the Super Bowl without yelling too loudly. I don't know. Um, But anyway, what's one thing that you can do? And, And here's the final thing that I would say. We cannot do this alone. We cannot do this alone. There are no, there is no, nowhere in the Bible where Christians are off on their own. They're always in, together, in the community, in the larger body, in the corporate body of believers. And that's how we grow from each other, learn from each other, understand each other. That's how we develop as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how we become a family. And, and, and I want to challenge you today. Um, we're launching our life groups today. And I want, to, I want to challenge you and encourage you to find some group where you can get plugged in and you can get involved. And it may be, you know, one night a week. It may be one night every other week. In your bulletin today, before we close, let me just pull this out and, and give you an opportunity to do this. In, our, in, your, bullet, or in your bulletin today, you will receive a, um, a, one, of these, one of these pages, one of these papers. Um, could our greeters come forward with some pins and some extra papers in case anybody didn't get one? Um, we have 15 awesome life groups this spring semester. Just really, really amazing life groups. I'm going to read them off to you. Just take a look at them and see if there's some, something that might pique your interest. Um, Glenn and Narcy Hur are doing Approaching Paul's Prayer. Uh, they're going to be seeking to come to a deeper knowledge of God through prayer, studying the scriptures. Attributes of God study, that one's closed. Uh, that's uh, Amy and Kelly. Um, uh, you're not invited to that one. It's closed right now. Um, they're full, which is awesome. Brittany Woods mentoring and tutoring. Kirk Williams leads a group over there. And this has been open to women. Uh, it was originally just a men's uh, guys group, but now um, that we're tutoring uh, both, you know, teenage boys and girls. So men and women are welcome to come and be a part of this group and lead and mentor and tutor um, our kids at Brittany Woods. Um, Directed Bible Discussion, that's Jason and Karen Fry. That's an awesome group, um, and they lead that in their home um, every other week. Fan Into Flame, Craig Wagner, who's, I think he's actually preaching at another church or something this week, but um, he's doing um, Fan Into Flame. It's a it's a video filmed, uh, it's a video and, and workbook Bible study that he's going to do um, every week, and that's going to be really cool, Craig Wagner's group. I'm going to do a men and boys bonfire and Bible stories uh, life group. So literally, 
everything that we're going to do, you see in the title. We're going to build a bonfire, and we're going to read Bible stories. That's it. That's the whole group. Um, so men and boys are welcome to come to that. My wife kicks me out of the house on Thursday. They have music rehearsal. So I like, okay, I'll just be in the backyard. So that's where I'll be. Um, music team worship. Our music team gets together, and they do a life group on Thursdays. Um, Dolores Lancaster on the back you see here is doing a Priscilla Shire study. You can see a video clip of that on our website. Um, that's a really cool study called Discerning the Voice of God. Um, the Bennetts are leading uh, regional prayer. They're getting together on Saturday mornings and praying together for the region um, because this is bigger than just this local you know, assembly here in this auditorium. We believe that there's only one church. Um, and that it's just one. And we're all one big body. We have different expressions, but we're all one. Um, uh, our student ministry leaders are going to be leading an event um, during the week for 6th and 12th graders, uh, uh, Tyler and Hallie. Women's Fitness Group is getting together with Brittany Carr and doing some um, scripture and strength training, that sort of thing. Uh, Women's Prayer and Accountability Group, Don Moses is leading that. They're going to pray together, talk about goals um, once a week. Uh, young adults meet up, are getting together. Um, Jennifer Musial and Andy Sherman are leading that. That has been an awesome life group for several months. If you're, you know, if you consider yourself a young adult, um, you're invited. Right, Andy? They, they're not checking IDs at the door. So you're, you're welcome to that group. And then young couples. Um, uh, Adam and Jessica Gronwald are taking that over from Ryan and Courtney Dieter, who just moved to Ohio. Um, and so... Awesome groups, man. Awesome groups. Find something on here. You can just check one of those boxes or two or three or ten and put those in the baskets in just a minute, and then your life group leaders will reach out to you uh, and let you know what's available. So relationship status, guys. Um, it's where we're going to be parked for the next three or four weeks. Encourage you. We're going to be deep in it. We're going to get right down to the heart of it. Invite your friends. Invite your family. Um, and let's just explore what the Bible has for us. Let's tap in to that deep reservoir of love and knowledge and power and peace and joy that the Bible brings to those who believe. Amen? Amen.